This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, my geeselings. This is a dreaded take two of the introduction because in the first one, apparently I forgot to turn on the mic. Anyway, I just dropped off my actual geeselings, pins the Cornish Rex and Mishka the Vishla at the vet for a dental cleaning. And when the tech was intaking them, he asked me if I wanted them to perform CPR if anything horrible goes on during their dental exam. And now I'm terrified that they're both going to die, but hopefully they don't. So fingers crossed. This is the introduction to episode 13 with Ethan Hoppy. I think it's episode 13. I hope it's episode 13 because I'm not going to do a take three of this. Uh, But Ethan is one of my best friends. I've known him since we were 10 and he was also featured on episode two. I hope it was episode two because I'm not doing a take three. And in episode two, we talk about his time in Air Force boot camp because he's a violinist in the Air Force. And if you're anything like me, you had no idea that there were violinists in the Air Force or the Army or Navy or any other branch of the military. But lo and behold, there are. He exists. He's a real person. And in that episode, I wanted to talk more about the violin than we actually got to. So that was the point of this episode. And the first 15 minutes or so are are background information. So what a military violinist actually does. And... We also talked a bit about Ethan's training at Northwestern and Yale. Then we got into more of the conceptual or theoretical or intellectual discussion that I'd hoped to have originally. So we talk about how a musician's abilities and focus change as they mature, the evolution of the violin itself. They used to use gut strings. Now they're using metal strings. Who would have known? Uh, How he views classical pieces as poems. Uh, the theory behind blind auditions, how he deals with stage fright, practicing while he dreams. I'm not a serious, well, I'm not a violinist at all, but I'm not a serious musician, even though I play the drums, but I do listen to music. Uh, That's not really what I get out of this episode, though, or these conversations I have with Ethan. It's more just that he's phenomenal at what he does. And I think being phenomenal at something, at anything, carries over into other areas of one's life. So hearing how he thinks about the violin, how he deals with the challenges of practicing or performing, they help me think, even if I'm not doing it consciously, about other areas in my life. So how he deals with stage fright as a violinist. I think actually, so I performed my sister's wedding ceremony last two weeks ago. And in our episode, he talked about how, well, I think this is what he talked about, how he just focuses more on the the physical symptoms of what he's experiencing rather than the 
I don't know, the, the psychological fear. Maybe he's already practiced, so he knows the material, but really what he has to deal with is his racing heartbeat or and these other physical manifestations of his nervousness. And though I wasn't thinking about this conversation consciously as I went into my sister's uh, wedding as the officiant, as I sat there and people, I mean, it wasn't a huge wedding, but as people were coming in, I just sort of took a few deep breaths, noticed my heart was racing and just focused on calming that down. And then the ceremony itself went very smoothly. So these conversations, I don't know, they have a way of leaking into your life or my life in ways that aren't anticipated. So even if you're not a violinist, even if you just absolutely hate music, uh, I still think there's plenty you can get out of it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. So last time we did our podcast and my intention had been to talk about violin, but we didn't really get to it because we ended up speaking mostly about the Air Force boot camp. And it's funny, I saw Top Gun yesterday. Have you seen it yet? No, I haven't. Actually, I haven't seen the original yet. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I saw I know that's the Navy, but anyway, it was funny. Is it, it the Navy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Apparently, the Navy has the second biggest air force in the world after yeah. <laughs> the actual air force, which is pretty funny. But we talked about your time in Air Force boot camp or basic training. Yeah. Uh, to be a violinist in the Air Force. So, but we didn't get to talk too much about violin, and that's mainly what I wanted to talk about today. So, when I first heard that you were going to be a violinist in the Air Force, and I'm sure most people th think this when they hear it. They think the Air Force has violinists. So what, yeah. what, why, and what do you do? So actually all the service branches have, um, they all have bands, but um, the Air Force, the Army, and the Marines all have string ensembles. Um, and we're all based in D.C., and basically we're um, – uh, support uh, our our mission is to uh, basically represent the Air Force, represent the country, and we do a lot of um, music that supports uh, Washington D.C. functions. So, like, we play uh, at Air Force, um, like higher up Air Force events for uh, you know officers that are in the D.C. area. We play at the White House sometimes, although that's more... The Marines are like the first call to the White House. That's their sort of duties. Uh, but sometimes they can't do it. Um, but you strummed at the, the White House Christmas event, right? Yeah, actually, that was my first... Um, <laughs> that was my first job. The first thing I did in the Air Force was playing at the White House. So I like to think that you're a spy now and just not telling me. But that's what you're really doing. Actually, you're, you're like you're like strumming at the White House, listening in on Putin and that sort of thing. So uh, we played this event for the uh, Qatar U.S. Uh, 50th anniversary. Uh, this was like a couple of weeks ago, and the 50th after, anniversary of what? Of 
their relationship, diplomatic relationships. Okay. Uh, so after we played, uh, which was, uh, well, the, we, we, we were the act that followed Ashanti. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she was like all like super amplified, backup dancers twerking and everything on stage. And there was like, I don't know, like a huge floor of people. It was kind of a dinner party. So she was performing and everybody was eating. And then she finished and there's 15 of us unamplified, just like on the floor and everybody was talking and eating and like they couldn't hear us at all. It was, it was a huge letdown. But anyways, <laughs> uh, afterwards they gave us um, good like sort of gift bags as gift exchange and inside were these Apple watches. Uh, oh, the Qatari, the yeah. Qatar. I don't know what they're called. Qataris, Qatarians. Yeah, they gave us Apple Qu- watches, and so at first, we complete were... with listening devices, like bugs to listen exactly. on everything. So actually, we were not technically going to be allowed to keep it because you can't accept uh, gifts from foreign governments uh, above a certain amount. But it's like ten dollars under the amount of like four hundred and ten dollars <laughs> or something. So you know, it's all legal that we can keep them, but. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Are you keeping it? Are no, you using an Apple Watch? It's it's, un, it's unopened, so I'm going to return it for store credit. Nice. Yeah. It, I, we actually wouldn't be able to wear them with our uniform because of the color. Like, you can't wear bright colors with the uniform. So, anyways. Uh, what that? So, that's an example of one of the functions we would do. And we also do... Um, concerts uh in the dc area that uh uh they're they're always free so we just like put on concerts for people and uh you know usually a part of the program if we're doing like a conventional classical music program uh we'll like do the anthem and like have something about the air force because you know that's kind of the point is to uh represent the air force and sort of just have outreach to the community and sort of uh, facilitate goodwill between the community and the Air Force. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. Cool. So before we talk about some of the type of material that's more interesting to me, uh, one thing I'd like to go over is briefly how somebody picks up a violin as a child and then ends up in the air force as a violinist. So you've been playing violin and music for as long as I've known you. So when we met at 10 years old, I think you already played five instruments by that point since you come from such a musical family. Yeah. So yeah, my, my what what does it look like? Uh, well, everybody's path is a little bit different. Um, because my dad's a cellist and all of my siblings played, uh, you know, music was just sort of uh, part of what we did growing up. And we all took lessons uh, starting from like four or five years old. Um, In a variety of instruments. Yeah. Well, we all played a string instrument and then uh, played piano uh, as well. Piano is like, it, it really helps to be able to play piano, especially later on, just to know, uh, just to, to have a, a different approach that you can have. There's, because string instruments are always mel- single line sort of melody type things and piano, you can play more harmony. So you get a, a 
different view of the music. Uh, but yeah, I got into a bunch of different instruments, you know, in middle school playing trumpet and drums and stuff because I liked jazz. Um, but, uh, well, I kind of just stuck with violin. I was most serious about violin. So, uh, yeah, I, I got, I started getting serious of, uh, about playing in professionally, seventh or eighth. You mean? Uh, well, even just like in seventh or eighth grade, uh, just when I switched teachers and the teacher was demanding like that more commitment. So I was started practicing like, um, you know, three or four hours a day. And that's, and, and by that point though, we, it might be what you're doing. It might be called like being in a studio or something like that, where the teacher has lots of serious students and you're interacting with serious students and playing in groups on the weekends and going to camps and concerts and things like yeah. that. It's so, not just, yeah. Yeah. I'm not just practicing on my own. So in high school, I was in a pre-college program that, uh, every Saturday for like from eight till four or whatever, um, you know, we went and we took theory and uh, played chamber music, played an orchestra, music history. Uh, and every Friday night we had studio class, which was like everybody in my teacher's studio just performed for each other because performing is, you know, so much a part of, it's not just practicing, you know, performing is kind of the point of it all. So we gave practice performances for each other. Um, and uh, so it was pretty intense and that's what I mean by serious because my, my teacher basically, she trains everybody as if they're going to be a soloist, you know, like perform concertos with orchestra and have a career like that. But realistically, you know, not everybody can do that because there's only one, uh, per, you know, they can't, there's just not that many. And it's really hard to have that kind of a career. You need to get to a certain place with your playing and have a, um, you know, and have certain opportunities uh, to be able to like have an actual career doing that. So uh, not everybody is trained that way, you know, different people, you know, have different expectations growing up, but that was just the way that my teacher trained people. And I mean, I found that, you know, because that is sort of, uh, that's the most demanding of, of you as a player playing a concerto. That's kind of uh, just with classical technique and everything, that is kind of the hardest thing that you have to do in some ways, just to stand up and play on your own. Um, I mean, every, every other sort of aspect, playing an orchestra, playing chamber music, and uh they, they all have their challenges, but uh, playing concertos really prepares you for everything. So uh, I found that, then, that that's helpful, been helpful for my playing, you know. And then you went to Northwestern, and did you major in music? Yeah. So, so you made... I majored in music. Um, so basically, I just, you know... I took, continued those classes that I was taking on, on Saturdays, music history, music theory, um, those kinds of music classes and playing orchestra and chamber music. But I spent most of my time practicing. Uh, and then after 
Northwestern, you went to Yale, and you got two master's degrees. And what were those two in? Yeah, so uh, master's of music. The first was master's of music, and um, uh, and the second was master of musical arts, which is just um, like the master's of music, but they have a program that allowed me to stay an extra year or actually go back an extra year because I took a year in between um, I uh, did a Fulbright in Israel and I studied with the teacher there uh, and did some concerts there for the year and then I went back and uh, it just gave me an opportunity to continue studying with my teacher because um, lessons is really the, the meat of all, all of these the degree isn't really that meaningful because it's just a piece of paper and really nobody really, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter when you're giving a performance, what your degrees are, you know, it's just, um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, I mean, I noticed the same. So I just got a master's degree from Columbia and it's very easy once you're accepted in a program to get the degree that's required of you or that you're, but the, but just getting the degree doesn't mean that you've learned anything, really. I got through a lot of high school without having learned anything. I was just th- thinking this morning, were you in my APUS class with Miss Chipman? Uh, no, I had Miss Kaler. Okay, so I was just thinking about it this morning. I got, after the first day of APUS, I had an F because our only assignment was... No, it wasn't even assignment. In class, we talked about our summer reading, and we had to say one thing. We just had everybody just had to make one contribution in the whole class period, and I just sat there with my arms crossed and like didn't say a single thing, and that was our one grade, and I got an F because of that. And she called my parents to let them know that I had an F after the first day. <laughs> but that's not what I was thinking about. What I was thinking about was we had president's quizzes yeah you remember that we had to like memorize every president who they ran against and their parties okay and we had i don't know quizzes maybe once a week where we had to learn like four presidents or something like that so that by the end of the year we knew all of the presidents and i never learned like past george washington so i failed every single president's quiz and i was just thinking this morning like, how is it that I managed to get through that whole year without once thinking, you know, I should sit down for like two minutes and learn <laughs> these presidents. Uh, but I still passed and have made it this far in life uh, with C's in AP US history. So wow. but anyways, that's just my anecdote about the degree. So you got the, the two degrees from Yale and did the Fulbright and lo and behold, soon after graduating, the pandemic hits. Right. And I know that you've, so you've already gone to a, an orchestra in Miami that's sort of a feeder to the larger orchestras where you practice while you're taking auditions. But then the pandemic hits and all the orchestras stop taking auditions because they're all somewhat suspended. Right. So that's a, a big blow. And you have, I don't know, a, I don't know if it was a year or two years before you, before the first auditions came and they were for the military orchestras and then you end up getting 
a very sought after position with the Air Force, which will be sort of a feeder then in the future if you want to leave to like New York or Chicago or LA or some other symphony like that. Uh, yeah, pretty much. It was a year. Uh, it was kind. Of, it was a year and a half between the. I had had an audition in February uh, of 2020, and then the uh, the next one, the, the Air Force audition was at the end of June 2021, and it was one of the first auditions. Yeah. So, uh, it was nice. I mean, people in the the uh, service bands. You know, because concerts and everything were suspended for everyone. So a lot of orchestras, like, just couldn't pay their musicians. Like the Metropolitan Opera of New York, you know, one of the highest paid orchestras in the country, just all of a sudden those people were had no paycheck and no job. So that's kind of tough in New York. Um, whereas people in the, the Army did not stop paying their, or the Air Force or – you know, the military did not stop paying their uh, servicemen. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a very stable uh, and uh, it's just, it's nice to sort of um, write out the uncertainties in, in this position right now. And, I mean, yeah. I have All right, awesome. <laughs> okay. So now I want to get to more of the good stuff. So I've known you for uh, 20 years then, I guess, and I've seen you play. So that would have been concertos when I saw you play Isai or Paganini or things like. Well, those, uh, yeah, those are just, Isai wrote solo, those were unaccompanied works. And so, yeah, in college I did a few projects of working on those things, but that's typically repertoire that um, soloists would play. I mean, it's not with orchestra, but, um, you know, it's meant to demonstrate virtuosity and um, just difficult, you know, prowess on the instrument. So the reason that I start with that is I've seen you play those pieces, which the, the things that I saw you do there with your fingers and your arms and your hands... Uh, I are, are almost like unbelievable to me. The amount of skill that you had compared to anything I've ever done. It's just orders of magnitude greater. And I don't think I'd ever seen anything. And I don't think I have ever seen anything match up to that in person since. And where that brings me is we started talking before we recorded with you telling me you were taking a lesson today uh, before you went for your run. Yeah. And the natural question that that leads me to, since you're about as trained as any violinist can be, and you're at the top of your field, in a sense, what is it that you're doing in a lesson at this point? And who's teaching you? Uh, So uh, I'm taking lessons now with um, one of the concert masters of National Symphony, he, he's incredible. Of the the National Symphony? symphony? Yeah, uh, which is... So that's like DC's symphony orchestra? Right. He, okay. he's, he's incredible. He has so much experience. Like, um, he, he's like had a really, uh, you know, wide and uh, impressive career. 
and he just and he's a violinist he he knows so much about the history and the context of all of this music uh what we're doing well i'm working on concert master solos with him because wait so what is a concert master does he play in the orchestra concert master is like uh the first chair he's He's one of the co-concert masters, so okay. he like sometimes you know sits second chair, but sometimes sits first. But uh, you know, okay. But concert master is a position in the orchestra, because right. when I hear you say concert master, I think of someone like standing behind the orchestra with a whip, like shouting <laughs> at everyone. Uh, but no, okay. Well, some some do act like that, but he's not. He's very sweet. Um, How old is he? Um, I, I don't know, 60s maybe, 50s or 60s. Okay. Um, I find myself very attracted to older men, not in a sexual way. Or Well, <laughs> older men, I guess I don't want to be sexist about it, but maybe it's sort of a grandfatherly thing. But Oh, I see. You just... I'm just gonna I'm gonna edit that part out of this conversation. Okay, so you you just continue. <laughs> uh, okay. So we're working on concert master solos, which are solos that come up in uh, symphonies for the first chair violinist, um, and that's just. Uh, I haven't played that repertoire that much, so it's nice to have this perspective. And also, uh, there's so much more about these pieces than is just in the music. There's a lot of these pieces are, you know, 200 years old. And you have to know what people have been doing for the last 200 years and what they're doing now and how that relates to with how they used to do it. So there's just so much context that isn't written in the music that just uh... hold hold on there. You have so to play a piece that is 200 years old, you have to know what people have been doing since then. Well, it helps. In... I would think it would be the opposite that you would. Well, maybe not the opposite, but to play a piece that's 200 years old, you need to know what people were doing in the 200 years before then. So that you're not really playing in a vacuum. Uh, well, in that well, sense. that too. So mm. when you're basically, we're interpreting the composer's um, ideas, and so you have to know the context that the composer was in to know what he was referring to and his like musical heritage. Um, but there's also because there's, you know, it's not just a written art form there's a performance history. And so the way that people have approached the same piece of music for the last 200 years has changed. Our instruments have changed. I like, see. We didn't have metal strings on the violin until like the 1970s or 80s. And before that... And you have you have metal strings on your violin? Yeah. Now everybody uses uh, metal wound strings. But before that, they were all gut strings. Huh. Um, I'm surprised that they that at the top, highest level they don't have you going out and catching deer and stringing your own violin well <laughs> well they 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 made it so that it, it's better i mean it's adapted to uh our current musical environment like 
they're much louder than gut strings, like a lot louder and a lot more durable. So uh, concert halls now are much bigger than they used to be and they hold a lot more people. So it's like, it's a lot harder to project. And then like say in Bach's time, like 300 years ago, when music was only happening in a church and those are notoriously, notoriously echoey. So like a smaller sound could carry further. Um, and so gut strings sound really good in churches um, because uh, they have a softer sort of um, more delicate timbre, you know, where, but you play gut strings differently than you play metal strings. So just the way that people play violin has evolved. And um, so there's a lot that goes into it. It's like an oral history because, uh, I mean, now there's recordings, there's recordings for like, you know, the last 60 years uh, of videos or maybe even a hundred, but the quality of the older recordings aren't that good. So, you know, we do have some idea of the way that people used to play and it's very different. It's very different. And to make an educated sort of decision about all these things, you kind of have to know, I mean, especially the way that people play it now. And uh, so that's helpful to know. But also I, I'm just taking lessons because um, basically there is continuous growth that happens. Like my playing is continually evolving. It's like, I, there is no peak. There's only uh, development. There's no, like if my playing stops changing, then that's gonna be a problem. So having somebody to listen to me play and to tell me what they think, no matter who it is, I mean, it's helpful that um, Ricardo has like such a great ear and such, um, you know, um, and is a really good teacher as well, you know, that's really helpful. But really just being able to play for anybody and hearing their feedback um, is is a really valuable tool in my own personal uh, development. Tell me if this, anal this analogy is at all apt, but I imagine that Hemingway had a pretty firm mastery of English grammar and mechanics by the time he was 30. And then for the next X decades, his style was constantly changing and evolving, but it wasn't, it was, it was separate from technical development. So is that kind of what you're saying? And that it's not like he, when you're taking a lesson, you're not learning, uh, you're not really refining rudimentary techniques or even learning new techniques, but it's a development of style or character or, or something, something less tangible. Um, yeah, that's part of it. I mean, the fundamentals, I mean, obviously I don't really need to relearn how to play. You know, I have the fundamentals because I've just been, uh, I've made it to a certain point, but uh, even that, even that, it's if you aren't constantly playing and refining and reflecting, it's easy to slip into a place where, uh, you know, you're playing 
the way your body sort of approaches the instrument goes somewhere that you don't want it to go. So uh, just getting too tense, it can creep up on you and then affect your playing without you realizing it if you're not sort of constantly aware. Uh, there, there's a lot of aspects to playing the violin itself um, that, um, you know, it's just a very all-encompassing pursuit. It's intellectual, it's physical, um, it's emotional. It has... Tell me about the intellectual aspect. Okay. Because, I mean, the, the physical is obvious. I mean, you're moving around, and then emotionally, you're feeling something with the music. But what's is the intellectual motivation or aspect of it just understanding the context and the history behind the pieces? Um, I mean, that's part that's of it. That's part of it, the history. I mean, but also, these pieces are like... Even even if you if you look at the music apart, you know you don't even have the violin in your hands. You have to kind of analyze it like it's a poem. You have to figure out why the composer wrote everything that he wrote, um, uh, and piece it together because every little marking that he wrote on the music is meaningful, you know. And so that's fascinating. Uh, I'd never that hadn't ever really occurred to me that it, I like, I like the poem, uh, the yeah. poem connection. And so a lot of the time, I mean, it's very rare that you're going to hear those um, recitals that you were mentioned before, where it's just a single violin alone. Most like 99% of the repertoire that I play is with other people. So my part is, Have yeah. My part is within the context. Oh, I was going to ask if my part uh, is within the context yeah. of um, of these other musical lines. So, like, I have to understand what their part is too, and how my part interacts with theirs. So, there's also harmony, which is looking at um, music vertically, uh, like uh, like in a single instant, all the notes that are happening, and they make chords, and you sort of see like there's tendencies for different chords. So they lean different ways and you analyze it that way too, as well as melodically, which is more horizontal, just seeing where the way that the melody flows. Uh, so that that's one aspect of it intellectually, but another aspect of it intellectually. Uh, well, before we go to the, to the next aspect, I'm wondering if, if you can tell me if you've ever had this experience that I've had with reading poetry and you probably have too, where, you have a poem before you and, and you read it a couple of times and maybe you have read it many times, but you think you understand it, uh, but there's something off about it that you just don't like or isn't resonating. Maybe there's like a word or a phrase that you don't understand or a word that you're interpreting incorrectly, but then once you figure out what that word or phrase means or that piece you're missing, you realize you were entirely wrong about the the poem and it changes how you view it entirely. And in this case, I'm wondering if like you might have been playing a, a violin piece in a certain way, trying to evoke a certain feeling, and there's just some tension between you and the music until you realize, oh, may, I, was, I, was play, I was reading this note wrong. Now that I have it right, 
the whole piece makes sense to me or playing a phrase incorrectly or with the wrong emphasis or has something like that ever happened? Yes, definitely. All the time. I mean, so. Okay, cool. So we're on the same page. I mean, it's not always as specific as like one note, you know, but frequently if you change your approach and uh, change your perspective in a way, like, okay, say take, um, okay, second movement of Brahms Brahms Concerto. Uh, This was, I don't know, a year ago or so. I played it for somebody who's like, okay, so what is the affect you're going for? And I said, uh, like, anguished. And he was like, okay, that is not right. Like, huh. I mean, he was like, try playing it um, like it's a prayer. Uh, what's the adjective he used? Prayerful or, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, the difference between prayerful and and uh, anguished, it's actually quite significant. But, I mean, if you're just talking about them as words, but you don't really realize that when you're putting into music because obviously, you know, mo- a lot of this music is not, uh, you know, specific like that. It's just sort of what I put into it isn't exactly what's coming out, you know, in, in terms of, the way the audience hears it. So changing the, an approach like that, um, and now like hearing it again, I see like how that is actually a much more of uh, an interpretation that's much more true to what the music is and like is more realizing the full potential of the music. I just wanted to play something angsty. And so I was like, I want to play it angu- anguish, but that's not actually what the music was about. This is making the audition process make more sense to me because I found it hard to understand how the judges, let's say, let's say judges listen to 30 violinists playing the same piece one after another behind a blind so they don't see who's playing it. And if you're all extremely technically proficient, I would assume that it would sound also similar that you'd be indistinguishable. But now that I gather there's this subjective interpretive component, you might as well be playing different pieces of music or that's possible that, I mean, the the variation could be so. Well, yeah, actually something that uh, was mentioned in my lesson today. was, And you could be wrong. Like right. they might listen to a piece and say, oh, he doesn't understand it, even though he's playing it perfectly. Right. So hmm. he said 98% of candidates, when you listen to them behind a screen in an audition, it sounds like they've never heard the piece before. Uh, and Even though they've been practicing it for months. Right. I mean, everyone's playing off the same music, but there's only so much you can put on the page. And if the people that are on the committee judging the auditionees They've played this piece for the last 20 years over and over again, basically every other year or so. So they really know how it goes, and they have it playing in their head when they're listening. And so if the person is doing exactly what's on the page, um, that's only, you know, half of 
what how the music is actually played. Um, there, there's a certain affect that you figure out when you play it and when you really know the music. So, yeah. Now, so I play the drums and I read drum music and I know that, okay, so a quarter note on the third bar, or I don't even, I guess I don't even know what it would be called, the third notch up. Uh, it means to hit the snare drum. But I know that hitting the snare drum can mean like a thousand different things. But I don't play the violin. So I'm wondering if there's just a note on the page. What is it that these 30 violinists could do differently to that one note that might what are the sort of variations on that one note that might make it sound like they're playing different pieces? Obviously, it would be multiple notes in succession, but is it... And I mean, like, very specifically, oh, they're they're moving their bow a little off to get a slightly different sound, or they're releasing their fingers from the strings just a little bit too... a little bit quicker, or it's a, a slightly harsher draw. Yeah, well... So this is more, yeah, this is getting into the technique of it, which, I mean, you could think of as the physical aspect of playing, because obviously you're moving your body, but I also think that there's an intellectual component to it. Um, uh, so if we're just talking about the different types of expression you can have on a single note, uh, at, just at a fundamental level, you could pull your bow a different speed, you could play a uh, different distance from the bridge, um, you could play with more or less pressure. You can use your vibrato differently to, you know, um, use go faster or slower. Um, and these are all like pulling different um, types of sound out of your instrument. Um, what I find really rewarding about um, about playing the instrument, just from from a player's perspective is this feeling that you get when you hit a sweet spot uh when when you're when you're working with the instrument like exactly the way that the instrument sort of likes to be played um and i think about it a lot um with relation to like um tennis or golf or soccer with all these sports that have those swing and you know when you've made like contact in the sweet spot of your racket or just you've hit the ball like in the most optimal way so that uh your shot is like very direct and like exactly where you want it to go um mm -hmm. so i mean if we're talking about that one note there's no one way to play it because um you're just you're trying to express something um so like it's just sort of subjective it's an emotional thing but um, sometimes the instrument itself it it can speak in an optimal way if you have this type of swing uh or if if you you know um if you play it in that way uh you can get the most optimal sound out of your instrument so I feel like 90% of what people hear when they're listening behind a screen in an audition say, or even in a concert, you know, cause most people haven't analyzed the piece that you're playing. So 
sort of the really intellectual decisions that you make as an artist sort of go over people's heads unless they've heard this concerto 20 times played by people that have made different choices and so they understand the significance of your decisions, right? But most people aren't violinists and haven't studied this repertoire so in-depthly. So what is it that they really connect to? It's the sound quality. Um, and just if it sounds like you're struggling to make a sound, um, or no matter what that sound is, like it's not really going to come across in a positive way. So there's this sort of effortlessness that uh, I find very appealing when I hear people playing, you know. And even with that effortlessness, you can play the same note in different ways, but it's sort of like um, just an attraction that people have to it because you can hear, you can hear, like when you're watching, why do people watch golf? You know what I mean? It's the most boring sport ever. I, yes. But there's something about yeah. watching someone swing, like the most efficient swing possible, that, that you can feel like the sweep and that contact that comes at the perfect time. There's something about watching that swing that is satisfying. And um, so... For the non-golfer. Yeah. I mean, I don't even play golf. <laughs> right. Well, I've never played golf, but I can imagine that... Like yesterday, I watched um, a woman on this course over here while I was rucking swing, and she she'd like been practicing her swing, and for for a couple minutes, and then she swung and just missed the ball completely. And I was thinking, I mean, I would probably do that too. And golf is, I can you know, I can just imagine that golf is so extraordinarily difficult that watching if you're a golfer, watching a good golfer golf is. Is so thrilling. Yeah, I mean those but golf tournaments. All those, I still, I still understand. Yeah, all those guys—they're hitting all the same shots. You know, they're playing the same course. They all, there's sort of a strategy. They probably all have like a similar strategy with whatever shot they're taking. You know, it's not like they're doing anything that differently. And yet, some people win and some people lose. Um, mm -hmm. So, there's an art to the swing. Um, as well and so no even though it's physical you know i think that's an intellectual aspect to it that i personally find that one of the most rewarding aspects of playing just because it's so tangible like it's you can feel it you can feel the violin respond differently when you um when you're when you're operating it um with a certain you know in a certain way and it's just it's so pitcher yeah i was going to say pitchers i think in baseball that from doing all of this repetitive movement they develop some serious joint issues just do you have anything like that from playing the violin oh yeah i mean really every, like what what's going on uh my left shoulder is really it's kind of stiff all the time just because you hold the instrument there. And I mean, ideally you got to be really relaxed, but you know, if I'm playing an orchestra yesterday, I played this concert, it, the one piece, Beethoven, Mises, Solemnis. It was an hour and 20 minutes long and you sort of get tired. You can't, you can't like have perfect posture the whole time. You just, 
it's 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 hard. So uh, yeah, I have to make sure to stretch and stay physically active. You know, doing a lot of different motions than violin to uh, balance it out. But musicians has more, one of the highest uh, rate of career-ending injuries because a little thing could go wrong and then you can't play. You know. So, and also it's repetitive stress causes a lot of injuries. Tendinitis um, gets a lot of people and just as you age, it gets harder also to maintain that um, pristine level of precision. Uh, So, yeah, but even, even if you're not injured, you could have an off day. You know, it requires like um, a flow-like mental state sometimes to achieve that uh, optimal sort of way of playing. So it's kind of intangible sometimes. Uh, What's the difference between like something that's fantastic and something that's just like correct? How do you get into that mental state? So this is another aspect of, of playing that is intellectually stimulating. Um, it is an exploration of yourself and of your own mind because performance, um, performance itself is such a weird thing. Like no matter what you're performing, if you're performing sports, if you're performing theater, you know, or music, like, stage fright you you get nervous and even if you don't think you should be you you just do and personally the way i deal with that is i just like to know i like to understand it i want to know what's going on in my head and why and like what happens when i get nervous in my head uh and how i can what i can do to counteract that so uh Sometimes, you know, they typically, people say like, clear your mind, you know, like the Zen approach is just meditate, focus on your breathing um, and just allow your thoughts to like come and go. And then like eventually they'll sort of clear and your mind will be sort of still like, you know, like a pond or something like that with no breeze. Um, I find that sometimes works but once you get nervous it's a fragile state it really is hard to maintain that when there's some pressure on it you know if you're in your you know second hour of meditation then that's perfect but um you if you need to get there like that you know right you get step on stage and you need to get there within one or two breaths um that doesn't always work for me so um, hearing the music in my head uh, is a way to like, it's like a visualization technique, but with sound. Um, and that gets me closer to where I need to be mentally because it gives my mind focus and I'm not like just thinking of like, okay, like, cause you can't really think of nothing, you know, it's easier to think of something. So it gives me a way to channel 
whatever um, extra energy that I'm feeling from nerves or whatever it is I'm feeling. Uh, so yeah, that, that visualization of the music is usually where I try to aim my thoughts. But even like, if I didn't play my violin, the idea of aiming my thoughts would, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't like come across that, come across that idea in normal life. And now when I, because I aim my thoughts for violin, like, you know, it comes up all the time, like in sports and when you're playing basketball yeah. or are you playing in DC much? Uh, I was playing pickup, um, or, you know, once or twice a week, but, uh, I fell on my wrist. So I decided to take a little time off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not good. Yeah, the mo I was thinking as you were talking about when I feel most in that state of mind. And it's usually when I'm lifting. Particularly, I I'm thinking about yesterday, uh, benching pretty heavy and having that barbell loaded with hundreds of pounds right over my face. And that really clears your mind pretty quickly. And if it doesn't, then there's, there might be a problem. Yeah. But also, when I'm drumming, my mind, I think, my mind is pretty clear. When I, I, I warm up every day by going through the rudiments, and I do one rudiment every day, and when I go through the 40, I start over again. So today it was the triple tap Rademacue, and I just start at a pretty low BPM and then work up to a record BPM, even if it's just beating my past record by one. And if I can't do that, then I match it with a different pair of sticks or something like that. Uh, but when I'm doing that, the repetitive motion, just, I get pretty zoned yeah. into it. I, but when I most want to be in the zone is when I'm writing. And that doesn't happen very often, sadly. I, I do a similar practice every morning. Uh, I wake up and just the first thing I do is like an hour of scales. I just find it to be very centering for the rest of my day. Even if that's the only time I play violin that day, you know, uh, I just feel more centered moving forward just from having that time focusing on the fundamentals and going through things slowly and working it, getting it faster like that. Now, presumably you're not developing your style by going through scales, but are you getting better at something when you're doing the scales or is it more of a mental practice and then a skill maintenance type of exercise? Uh, because for me, when, I, when I'm doing this, I'm still getting better. I don't have anywhere near the technical proficiency that you have. Um, it's, Skill maintenance, but all, but uh, I think a lot of it is maintenance. But uh, there's so many different ways to approach just playing that I can I can do the same stroke and one day just feel it differently, like feel how it feels um, differently. So I 
sort of just experiment with different feelings. Uh, like, I mean, in my body, not emotional feelings, usually. Um, but uh, kinesthetic feelings. Wait, that is that the word? Yeah. Um, kinesthetic is like your body awareness. Yeah. So doing something slowly, because muscle memory is such a big part of the violin. You know, there's no frets. So you just know where the notes are because your fingers know. So I just remind myself, basically. I'm just reminding myself every morning what where those pitches are, what it feels like to pull the bow uh, in a really optimal and relaxed way. And, well, actually, something I, – I, I used to lift a lot, and I um, that that comparison with lifting and, and violin is um, optimal, or it's it's striking in some ways. You know, is you have to perform under pressure because when there's weight above your head, you you better like lift it up, or otherwise, you know, you're gonna get hurt. Um, the situation isn't as dire. If violin, nobody's gonna get hurt if you mess up, but um, just your pride. Um, mm -hmm. But something about lifting that simplifies it is that the more you work, the stronger you get in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, that's not. A, ultimate rule you need rest days and you need to like have a plan for training but um like if you're trying to lift something heavy you have to push harder than if you're trying to lift something light uh and that is where uh sometimes it can differ from violin because just when you try too hard the instrument doesn't take it and um well I think it's a difficult balance to strike because uh, you know that book, the talent code. So, yeah. Well, no. who wrote it? I don't remember, but in it, it's a famous um, sort of comment that the author makes that 10,000 hours of practice is what it takes for anybody to be. Uh, well, I think Malcolm Gladwell came up with that 10,000 okay. hour rule. So, but I think it's pretty debunked, but it doesn't matter. It still sounds nice. <laughs> well, yeah, for violin, no, for a lot of things. I mean, it, they take work. But what yes. is it that you're doing when you're improving? For me, it's more straightforward when you're improving, when you're lifting, you're getting stronger. Uh, it's less, it's harder to put your finger on it when you're working on a skill or an art form like that, like writing probably. Well, lifting is a skill, but, but I understand, I understand what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, but you're not, you don't work. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's much different. Pardon? Yeah, at least with lifting, there's a single metric by which you gauge whether right. or not you're improving. I mean, because you can lift a lot. I mean, other than whether you're injured or something like that, or if it's making you happy, but generally it's right. how much weight but you're lifting. you can also, you know, you can lift a lot of weight improperly. 
like somebody that is really strong can have, you know, can lift improperly and be bad at lifting, but still lift a lot. Um, uh -huh. Whereas the metaphor doesn't, or the uh, parallel doesn't move into the arts. I'm talking about kinesthetic awareness and something that the the rudiments do for me. So, if you are you wearing socks right now? No. All right, look down. I'm at wearing your pants though. Well, no, you don't have to stand. Just look <laughs> down at your pants, your toes. But uh, I mean, you can move all of your toes, right? I mean, you can bend them and open them. But can you move your big toe in a circle without moving any of the other toes? And then can you move it in a circle in the other direction? No. Neither my circle. guess, yeah, is my guess was no. And most people can't do that. I can do that because I like took a long time of staring at my toes and getting in like developing that awareness and that's a long story why i did why that's I like kill bill that. but you know uh that scene where she comes out of a coma by wailing her oh oh yeah yeah i do know what you're talking about that's funny but it amazes me i mean generally we're not confronted with our body not able to listen to our mind's cues but if you try to bend your middle toe yeah. without bending any of your other ones you just can't make that connection to your toe for whatever yeah. reason and when i'm drumming per i focus on this particularly when i'm doing the rudiments the the stroke with my right hand of the drumstick if you if you track the head as it's bouncing off the drum and then coming up it's not straight. It like goes down and then it kind of like goes like that on the way up, like a very elongated S. And unless I am moving it so slowly, I just can't get it to g come back up on my right hand without making like a little S. And it just drives me nuts. Because oh, you're left handed. But it's that kinesthetic awareness. Yeah, because I'm left handed. But it's I'm just trying to develop by focusing on it. As I do the rudiments, I'm just trying to develop the awareness of what's going on in my right hand, so I can make that stop. And it is—it has gotten better. It's another thing, like with my left hand, I can just use my fingers to roll pretty, pretty fast. But with my right hand, I can only do like three, or two, or two or three, and then like my fingers just stop hitting the stick at the precise rate and force that they need to, to get it to bounce. Uh, so that, I mean, that's why I say I'm like really working on these very small fundamental movements when I'm doing the yeah. rudiments, but you've developed a lot of that, but I imagine that there are times when you started out where your fingers just aren't moving fast enough or they're not moving the way you want them to. Uh, even I mean later on when you were doing the Paganini, I imagine that took a yeah. lot of practice. Well, it's endless. I mean, you can always do it. You can always find a way to do it better, uh, more efficiently, 
more effortlessly. So, and like my, my sort of perception changes as my abilities change. So like my feeling of how my competent, my competence basically just doesn't change. So it's just endless. Really? I would have thought that as you know more and learn more, you start to think that you're a shittier and shittier (laughs) violinist. Oh, that too. (laughs) Well, yeah, but then I guess it comes in waves because they're not, they're not changing at the exact same times. Like, you know, when I see Mm -hmm. a performance that really opens my eyes to something that I'm not doing, then it's crazy. And I sort of get obsessive about working on that, you know, and then I plateau for a while because I don't see the problem in my own playing that exists until I do see it. And then I can change it, you know? So something that I don't think we've talked about this since high school, but I, I remember you telling me that you would practice while you were dreaming. And I'm wondering if you still practice while you're dreaming. You mean like and lucid dreaming? Or? I, I'll leave it open. So uh, I do sometimes do a mental practice. Um, just... You know, I find it helpful to organize my approach before I pick up the instrument. Uh, if I need to memorize something to like really know that I have it in my head before I even try to play it. Uh, and the funny thing about mental practicing is that it makes me sleepy. So uh, oftentimes mental practicing is a euphemism for taking a nap. Um <laughs> But, uh, but I wake I up like from that. the nap uh, in a different place and with the music, then I go to sleep. So I do often go to sleep even at night um, just thinking about music uh, in that same way, actually, that um, I describe trying to find that flow state. If I'm having trouble falling asleep, uh, I'll try and just channel my thoughts into uh like singing a piece of music in my head or playing a piece of music in my head. Uh, and that leads me to sleep actually. Uh, I can't say that I'm actually practicing while I'm asleep, but it takes you to a different mental state. So in a sense, it's dreaming, even if you're awake, uh, you know, if you're in that sort of flow state, even if you're not playing, it's just your head is in that space. Um, it's a form of, of uh, I would, I mean, it's a form of practice and it's a form of dreaming. So, yeah, I guess you could call it dream practicing. <laughs> Got it. So a couple things come to mind. The first is, so I think of you as a violinist and... Like I, I, when I say that, I mean, I think of that as your primary activity, 
I mean, I think of you as Ethan as a person, and we had this conversation a long time before, a long time ago, like whether you wanted to be a violinist or a person and you chose being a person. And, but, but I think of you as a violinist and that I think of that as your main activity. And for me, I, even though I do a variety of things as do you, I think of myself primarily as a writer. And when I am, this is something that I've noticed. I've only noticed this very recently and it's come from being more introspective but when i get in bed i know that i'm about to fall asleep when my thoughts are no longer coherent like do you have you noticed that where you like get to a state where you're lying there and then your eyes are closed and then you're just thinking a blueberry pie last yeah. week like and you didn't even have blueberry pie but it's just like there are words and random yeah. things coming into your mind yeah so i noticed that around that time and typically like just before that time i'm still not really aware of what's going on in my head but things i'll have been writing about or want to be writing about i'll have a lot of thoughts just come into my mind around then and i'll have to occasionally say uh i'm going to change her name so that she doesn't wake up hey bleary take a note and um but or I'll just roll over and write the note if it's long enough. But in that in that sort of window before you fall asleep, is there a lot of musical activity going on, even if you're not consciously singing a piece like you've just described? Uh, like, is it a revelatory period? Um, sometimes. I would say... Yes, in that a lot of the the ideas I, I want to try out in my next day's practice come about when I'm not practicing. But I can't really write it down. You know, like the things that I find, the revelations that I have, or the avenues that I want to pursue, uh, aren't really concrete enough for me to be able to like put it into words. Um, so it's more of a feeling. And sometimes that comes right before sleep, just in that, that mental clarity of sort of not thinking lucidly, but still thinking about um, music or writing or whatever it is. Um, but actually that is more around, that's more when I'm napping, not, I do have that when I nap, but not like when I go to sleep at night. And oftentimes mm -hmm. like when I wake up from a nap and I'm kind of groggy and sort of in that not quite awake state, that's when I can, I, I more relate to what you're talking about. And that maybe I just remember it better because I wake up afterwards instead of going to sleep. Uh, and then I wake up and I'm right by my violin and I can try it out. So when I first asked you about dreaming, 
this is probably a conversation that we had like on a school bus to a soccer game or something like that. But when I last played video games was in middle school and I would play this game Warcraft. Uh, like over the summer, that's all I would do if I had free times. I'd play Warcraft 3. I'd stay up super late and until I like had to go to sleep then i would go to bed but as soon as i got in bed like as soon as i closed my eyes even before i'd fall asleep i'd be seeing work i'd be like playing warcraft or seeing warcraft as if i were daydreaming it and then that's what i would dream about i'd just be playing warcraft while i was dreaming and i think when i told you this in high school you said that something similar to you would happen when you were dreaming and that you would because you played violin so much you would just be with a violin in your sleep and playing. But so if that's that you don't have that experience anymore. Uh, I also think you play violin less well, than you did back then. I probably play more than I did. I, I practice four hours a day. That's my number, but then I have rehearsals and stuff, but I now practice basically exclusively in the morning. I find that I'm the most productive and just get the most work done. Whereas in high school, I uh, and I see that yeah, because in high school I would practice effect. like I the only time I had was like, you know, at night right before going to sleep. So that sort of would do that um, hmm. to my sleep, I guess. Um, but I still find I mean, some people don't like practicing in the morning. I just find like, you know, it makes my day better and gives me I, I have more clarity and energy to work on things right first thing in the morning. So, yeah. All right, right, Ethan. That's all I got for today. Awesome. Thanks again. Yeah, it's fine.